I'm Kevin McDermott, and this is the Faculty Profile Podcast. My guest today is Kevin McMahon, the John R. Wrightmeyer Professor of Political Science at Trinity. Professor McMahon is the award-winning author of two books on the relationship between the presidency and the Supreme Court, and has co-authored three books on the presidency and presidential elections. In 2014, the Supreme Court Historical Society awarded its Irwin N. Griswold Prize in recognition of Professor McMahon's book titled Nixon's Court, His Challenge to Judicial Liberalism and Its Political Consequences. In the classroom at Trinity, Professor McMahon has taught on the American presidency, constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and law and society. We'll cover some of those topics and much more as I speak with Professor Kevin McMahon on this episode of the Faculty Profile Podcast. Welcome to the show, Kevin, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start just by asking about your first recollection of engagement with politics. Like, when was the first really substantive moment that you recall with your interest in politics? Yeah, it's sort of, um, I remember when I was, I guess, 10 years old, um, being very interested in, I guess I'll give two answers on that. One is I was 10 years old. I was uh, very interested in the presidential election of 1976. So Jimmy Carter versus Gerald Ford. And I remember uh, waking up, you know, I, I went to bed way too. It was a close election. Jimmy Carter won with 50.1% of the vote. And Gerald Ford stayed up late that night thinking that he might actually pull it off, which would have been a surprise given the the effects of Watergate. But uh, waking up and sort of um, being excited that we'd have a new president and, you know, that this uh, this um, governor from Georgia was going to come to the White House. So yeah. where were you? Where did you live at that time? Where were you growing up at, at 10 years old? Yeah. So I grew up in a small working class town called Watervliet, New York, which is outside of Albany, um, north of Albany. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I would say that's sort of my second experience. So my Around the same time, I would say, maybe a little, I was a little younger, um, my father worked in a factory, you know, so it was a, um, um, a tape factory, um, and they were on strike uh, at one point, and I remember going and visiting him on the picket line. So I thought, you know, that's to some extent a political experience as well in terms of, you know, trying to, in that case, a labor union trying to get what they, what they thought they they deserve from the company. Yeah. Back to your first recollection of the 76 election. What what was coverage like of presidential elections? I think most of the students you teach now are very familiar with 24-hour news channels, right. with um, nonstop political coverage and seemingly sure. coverage of elections that are happening years in the future. What was, when you were 10 years old, your recollection of the coverage of that election? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one for me. But certainly in terms of the um, in terms of, you know, where you got your news, it was really from newspaper, maybe from Mm -hmm. radio and then the nightly news, the half an hour, you know, Walter Concrete was the most popular of the of the three main newscasts. But but that's um, that's how you got your news. And, you know, politics itself was was quite. Unusual. Jimmy Carter was famous. the The Iowa caucus, which now is uh, you know more of a significant event, um, Carter was really the first to utilize the caucus, and he would just 
he was governor running for president. He'd just go to people's doors. Hmm. If people didn't show up, you know, if people weren't home, he'd write little notes, you know, came to visit. I'm Jimmy Carter running for president. Hope to see you next time. So it was, it was certainly not the, um, you know, certainly there were TV commercials during the general election, but in terms of becoming the, the Democratic nominee, it was not like that. Yeah. And did, so did Carter use that success in Iowa? That was a springboard for him to national recognition and kind exactly. of national profile? Yeah. So, you know, there were a bunch of people running because Ford, um, Ford was not elected, right? Was not elected either as uh, vice president or as president. Nixon resigns. Uh, Ford was only the the minority leader of the of the House of Representatives. Um, he's chosen as VP. He's confirmed. Um, so he and then very early on in his presidency, just about a month into his presidency, he pardons Nixon of all the crimes, right? Mm -hmm. So his popularity basically plummets with that decision. I mean, it's seen as a very important decision for the country, and he uh, he gets credit later on for that, but, but it certainly plummets in terms of his popularity, and it's seen, that race is seen as very much of an uphill battle. So the fact that he did as well as he did uh, he had some stumbles in the debates, but the the fact that it was such a close race really said something about his skills, uh, somewhat surprisingly, and uh, and the strength really of uh, the Republican Party at the time. Yeah. So then that seventy six election <clears throat> did that uh, one of your first memories. Uh, did your interest continue through middle school and high school, or did you have right. other interests besides politics, or did it yeah. become a real passion for you? At that uh, time? It didn't. No, I wouldn't yeah. say that. I was always interested. You know, I was always like a kid who watched the news, which is probably a little unusual. Um, but you know, when I went to college, I thought I'd be a computer science major, hmm. and then I became an econ major, and then I just took a intro to American political government course. I think it was my second year or third year and really enjoyed it you know yeah. really got into it and then i decided to double major in political science and went to graduate school after that yeah so. and and so as i mentioned in the intro your your two books um that you've written the the first on uh fdr and his relationship with the supreme court the second on nixon and his relationship with the supreme court mm -hmm. when did your interest in that specific relationship between executive and judicial right. begin like where where did that where's the genesis of that uh passion or, right. or interest yeah it's um you know i think the the most difficult time in a graduate student's career if you will um is you take your you know you go to graduate school it's not all that different at least in my experience not all that different from being an undergrad and then you have to make a decision about what you're going to write your dissertation on, right? Mm -hmm. So this is this is really a decision which you will devote at least five to seven years and potentially longer, right? In my case, much longer. So I was I I always had an interest in the presidency, you know. Part of the um, I think part of the reason why I was interested in politics is, as I said earlier, I grew up in the Albany area. So I, um, you know, it's very close to uh, very close to the capital of, of New York. Uh, when I was in college, I interned in the Albany, in the legislature in Albany, and then worked briefly after school to in the in the state Senate. So um, 
you know, so I think that was there and this, this sort of interest in um, legislative politics, um, but also the executive branch, right? So, mm-hmm. and I was always interested in the, my most, uh, the most significant courses for me were courses on civil rights and civil liberties and constitutional law. So it was trying to marry those, the interest in the executive, the legislature, and then the judicial. Mm-hmm. And my dissertation compared three presidents. Um, the first was uh, Roosevelt, okay. FDR, the second Nixon, and then the third Reagan. And, you know, since I've written the dissertation, obviously they've become book projects. Yeah. Uh, it, so starting with your first book on mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt, um, you, you write on his nominees to the Supreme Court and how they ultimately influenced the decision of Brown versus Board of Education. Is that is that an accurate yeah, thumbnail know, of it? Yeah. Um, you um, know, initially the, the project was about how presidents try to shape the Supreme Court. Uh, and that's what the dissertation was really about. Mm-hmm. In writing the portion about FDR, I, I knew that, so that was just a third of the dissertation. I knew there was a, a larger story to tell that was really much more about civil rights. Okay. So FDR had this experience where, you know, he's elected president the, the, um, in, in 1932, landslide election. Um, he passes what's called the First New Deal. Uh, the, the Supreme Court strikes it down as unconstitutional. Uh, he passes the Second New Deal um, in 1935, which includes things like the Social Security Act and uh, uh, Labor Rights Act, the Wagner Act. Uh, and, and most people think that will be, those pieces, the Second New Deal will be struck down as well, right? So, so it, the 1936 election, while he doesn't say much about the court, it, there's the sense that uh, there's really gonna be a constitutional conflict when, when the president gets reelected. He gets reelected, another landslide, 60% of the vote, you know, um, wins all but two states. Um, and, he proposes this legislation, the court packing plan, to expand the size of the court from nine to 15. That ultimately is defeated. Um, and luckily, uh, partially luckily, uh, partially, partially luck, uh, might other things as well, uh, the court has been, is filled with older men, right? And they start to retire and he's able to, to ultimately appoint nine justices of the Supreme Court. So FDR our, himself as president nominated a not, full court. Of, uh, one, so one person stays. So one appointee only serves for a year I see, because yeah. he, he's appointed. The war breaks out and he leaves to work in the White House. Okay. So he doesn't replace everyone, but he but uh, virtually everyone. nominates nine right. justices. Not, that's right. Amazing. And, and yeah. eight and fills, in a sense, eight sitting positions. Um, and. So my the first project was how does this relate not to these broader questions of of uh, president versus the court, but how did it relate to civil rights? So mm-hmm. if you look at those individual appointees and you're in a sense remaking the entire court, that's certainly significant. And then I also looked at the Justice Department. What was the Justice Department doing on these types of issues, particularly uh, things like lynching and pr- police brutality in the South, racially targeted police brutality? So the argument generally with regard to FDR is that while Eleanor was out and very active and very much of a, um, a leader for social justice uh, and civil rights, 
FDR did not do much. And many uh, civil rights, pieces of civil rights legislation were introduced. He did not publicly support any of them. All that's true. But if you look at sort of the, the politics by other means, appointments to the court, action in the executive branch, the argument is that 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 ultimately develops precedent that builds to the Brown versus Board decision. And five of the, the nine justices on the court in Brown are FDR appointees. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, your most current book um, mm-hmm. on, on Nixon's court, um, does it center around similar processes where Nixon, through his appointees, um, pushing legislative agendas mm-hmm. that, that he held close and and was was really pushing right yeah so the nixon one is a little different i mean in the sense i try to um i try to so nixon is is the standard story with regard to nixon is that he talks a conservative game in 1968 he runs this law and order campaign Uh, he's opposed to busing he's very vocal on that but but ultimately he's not successful Right. So if you look at some of the most significant decisions of this period, Roe versus Wade, you know, which is seen by conservatives as this, you know, this horrible decision. So who writes Roe versus Wade? Well, a Nixon appointee. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a seven two decision at this point. By 1973, Nixon has appointed four justices. Three of the justices of his justices are in the majority. Only one in dissent. Right. So, and that's one, the uh, Furman case, which is a 1972 case, which uh, says the, con- the death penalty is unconstitutional, right? So, so the sense is that while, you know, there's uh, an effort, it fails. So the most significant book on the Nixon court previously uh, to, to my book is uh, called The Counter-Revolution That Wasn't, right? So they tried, but they failed. So my argument is that, well, let's take a look at this because Nixon really isn't interested in abortion, right? He's not interested in, even the death penalty is not really a, a, a big um, voice on that. What does he focus on? And he really focuses on two uh, policy areas, school desegregation and law and order issues, but not the death penalty. And then he's really interested in using the court to attract <clears throat> um really working class blue collar Democrats into the Republican coalition, people who would later be called Reagan Democrats to bring, how do you, you know, Nixon was always in the minority virtually his entire life before he became president was in the minority. Um, And so how do you transform the Republican party into a majority party? So he's using this, these issues and, and issues like busing are deeply unpopular. Um, you know, people feel there's a there's a problem with regard to uh, issues of law and order, and he's able to use these court issues as a way to to really most significantly, I would say, to build the uh, to build the Republican Party into a majority coalition. So, if you start in 1972, 1972 Nixon wins 49 states, right, 59 percent of the vote. <coughs> we talked about 1976, even with Watergate. Um, Ford almost wins that, right? And even with Watergate and the pardon, 1980, Reagan wins a landslide. 1984, Reagan wins 49 states, all but uh, Minnesota. 1988, uh, Bush, uh, the first Bush wins a comfortable victory. So you have this period of 
of you know five or six election where, where you really have Republican dominance. Yeah. In terms of the vetting process for those nominees, were the political leanings of judges parsed as almost viciously as they are now and, and as thoroughly mm-hmm. as we think as I think about nominating processes for the last few <clears throat> nominees was it as a similar process in in those days when Nixon was was nominating those justices to some extent yes so he appoints um in 1968 um Earl Warren Chief Justice Earl Warren this great liberal chief justice sort of uh, sees what's happening out in society. Um, he thinks that Bobby Kennedy um, might be able to win the presidency. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in early June of 1968. Warren then decides to resign, to retire as chief. And LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, um, tries to nominate, to elevate a, uh, a justice, a sitting justice, Abe Fortas, to replace Warren and then fill Fortas's position with someone else. That ultimately is filibustered, that nomination. Fortas's um, nomination to chief is filibustered by Southerners opposed to um, the, the civil rights advances that the court did and, um, and Republicans, right? So, is that sorry? Is that precedent? Sure. Um, <clears throat> is there a precedent for that of nominating a sitting justice to become chief justice? Um, it's not. It's not unprecedented. Okay, but it's not common. But the the most recent ones have been new appointees to the chief justice position. Is that yes? Most recent. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. To no. 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 That's fine. So they opposed his elevation to chief justice right. on political. That's grounds. right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So they were they brought him in and they, they questioned him on certain opinions uh, and the, and he would often say, "Sorry, this is an issue that might become come before the court. I can't answer it." Mm-hmm. Right. They'd still press him. Right. So they they they'd push really harshly on 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 this and and were very successful. It actually became sort of political theater. So Nixon is elected. He knows he has Fortis is blocked. He knows he has one seat, the chief justice seat. There's a, there's then a campaign be, at, during Fortis's um, nomination. Evidence is is uh, uncovered, which suggests that he had some f- financial improprieties. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Nixon Justice Department, in a sense, goes after Fortis and says, either resign or we're going to expose you. He resigns. So in the first few months of his presidency, this is May of 1969, he has two seats. He appoints um, a Warren Burger, sort of a moderate conservative justice from Minnesota, and goes through pretty easily. He's chief justice. Then he appoints uh, a Southerner, um, uh, Hainsworth from South Carolina, and Hainsworth is torn apart, right? Uh, Rejected. He points another Southerner, Carswell, rejected by the by the Senate. Not and this is senators, not just this isn't a partisan effort. This is both Republicans and Democrats who are opposing, or Democrats and Republicans opposing. And then only the third, his third appointment, does he appoint uh, another Minnesotan who ha- happens to be good friends with Berger. They're called the Minnesota Twins, and he's he's uh, confirmed as as a. Uh, as the Nixon second justice. So, so the answer to your question is yes. Um, yeah. 
So the the theater that we've seen with justices nominees coming before Senate panels and Senate nominating committees is is nothing new for for the recent justices that we've seen the last 10 yeah years. i mean obviously the tv wasn't <clears throat> wasn't there the tv really becomes uh apparent with watergate but um you did have that was really new in late 1960s so for example if you go when i wrote the book on fdr if you go and look at the senate testimony of supreme court justices for n- the nine fdr justices right the book is, you know, about an inch thick. Mm-hmm. If you look at it for Bork or for uh, Clarence Thomas, you know, it's probably two feet thick. Yeah. So it has changed. It evolved um, and yeah. deepened. But, but that was really the first point, 1968 with Fortis. Looking at the, the current court, it, do you think Ginsburg will be the n- next to, to retire? or She's likely um, to be, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, you want to... Justices typically are fairly strategic in when they retire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if it's it, and I think she's, she's fairly political as well. Um, so I'm sure she's hoping for, you know, Hillary to win the, the presidency yeah. and hopefully the Democrats to, from her standpoint, to, to take, uh, take over the Senate. And yeah. Breyer is another kind of older justice. Is that right? He, I mean, or, yeah. So Breyer was, uh, in terms of age, he's not, um, he's not one, one of the oldest, but um, he was appointed in, um, in 1994. Okay. So he's another, Ginsburg was 93 for Clinton's first and Breyer was, uh, was Clinton's second. So you also have Scalia appointed by Reagan, Kennedy appointed by Reagan and, uh, and Thomas appointed by Bush. But most likely the next justice will be a liberal, ju- to retire will be a liberal leaning or left leaning yeah. identified justice. Yeah. yeah I mean, most likely it's going to be Ginsburg. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and you know, it, it may depend on who gets elected president, right? So Scalia, I think is now 78. So if you have, you know, um, Jeb Bush being elected president, mm-hmm. he might say, this is my time to go. I see. Right? I see. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the chief justice position? I mean, how how important is that position? That you know, the role of uh, determining which cases the court is going to hear, and mm. and how they, as chief justice, direct the the court and and determine its path. Yeah, I know it's a broad. A yeah, big, no, no, that's question. fine. That's fine. Uh, it's but, um. It's actually not that significant of a okay. position. Yeah. Um, the the main duties the 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 court the chief does have duties in terms of you know the budget of the court in terms of re- making a request to Congress on what's necessary. But in terms of the decision making process, um, he his role is is basically as follows: if he's in the majority. He gets to write the opinion or assign the opinion to some other justice. If he's in the minority, that duty falls to uh, the most senior justice. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, now this can be important. So for example, back to the road decision, the road decision is a seven to two decision. Most people think that justice Berger, uh, chief justice Berger joined the majority because he wanted to assign the opinion, right? He, he, he really would have dissented, but because he had this power, he wanted to assign it. He didn't want Justice Douglas, who was the most senior justice, to write the opinion. Hmm. 
So it can be significant. Yeah. To your um, teaching responsibilities um, here here at Trinity, you you've ended up um, as a, a you know professor at a smaller liberal arts small liberal arts college. You uh, undergrad and grad school went to two fairly small institutions. Um, why? Why liberal arts institution? Like, how how did you end up here, and what advantages do you see as, you know, your role as scholar and teacher at the liberal arts institution? Yeah, yeah. I think you know, you a place like Trinity, you can be a teacher scholar, and that's certainly how we define ourselves. Um, and you know, it allows you to really be engaged in the classroom to teach uh, traditionally smaller classes. Um, and to also have enough time and, and resources to devote to your scholarship. I think a lot of times with, if you're on a research one place, uh, you tend to, the teaching is sort of a side thought in all honesty. You teach the big classes, you have graduate students who serve as TAs, um, that the focus is really about research and only research. And that, you know, if you get denied tenure, you're not getting denied tenure because you're bad in the classroom. You're getting denied tenure because you didn't publish enough, right? So I think, you know, very much in the, the way that you have uh, student athletes at Trinity College, right? Uh, in, a, in a way that you don't at, you know, at uh, big places like say University of Alabama where they are athletes and maybe students. Maybe go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, the, it's the same sort of balance, right? You, that you can, uh, you can, um, excel it in both ways if if you put your time and energy into it yeah now in, in talking to a couple of your former students one class that um was received high praise uh, all of them did but your constitutional law <laughs> pardon me constitutional law course um give us kind of an idea of what you expect students to walk away from constitutional law with like when, when mm. they're done with that course what what do they have um from from that course yeah i mean you know when you when you hear words or phrases like constitutional law i think many people hear them as intimidating right um and my hope is that students become constitutional interpreters in their own right right the justices um are appointed because uh they at least uh, currently they went to the right law school and they got the training but Unlike the presidency, unlike the uh, the House of Representatives, there's no requirement, right? You can be 20 years old without a college degree and be a Supreme Court justice. Now, practically, that's not happening, right? But, you know, we can all read these, these cases and we can all seek to understand the logic that's, that's either convincing or or unconvinced or not convincing uh within the opinions themselves and what's great about teaching courses with case law is that oftentimes there are dissents right so so you know i certainly found myself when i was reading some of these cases for the first time that you read the majority opinion and you say oh yeah that's right you know he, he's right on or she's right on um uh, she, uh, the justice has convinced me. And then you read the dissent and you say, oh yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I'm convinced by the dissent as well. Right. So it really forces you to, to challenge what are often very good decisions, right. Very well written, uh, very well thought out and to come to your own conclusion. What do you think is the right answer? Can you think of a case that, you know, for, uh, within the kind of, um, 
within the medium of this interview that, that mm -hmm. might be worthwhile discussing where you do have very convincing arguments that hold precedent, but mm -hmm. also had a very strong um, dissenting view and, and um, dissenting opinion that did relate back to a sound uh, right. understanding of the Constitution and, and sure. that element of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, so for example, in my, I teach Con Law 1, uh, which deals with presidential powers and, and judicial power and, and congressional power. And then Con Law 2 is the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties course. So, you know, so for example, free speech cases in, yeah. in the Civil, Civil Liberties course, um, you often, you know, this balance of everyone knows the phrase that you can't falsely yell fire in a crowded theater, right? That this is, that if you do, um, if there's no fire, you know, you might cause a stampede and this will be a very dangerous thing, right? So, so there's some limiting on, on uh, our ability to speak. Um, but where does that, where is that border? Where is that draw? You know, where do you draw the line on what's acceptable and what's unacceptable? And I think students come into the course think, being more on the side of allowing all this free speech that's possible. But, and, and there are certainly justices who make that argument, so-called absolutist, right? So, so really you can't restrict any speech. But then you, you hear some, some arguments, whether it's in the 1920s when you were dealing with um, some revolutionaries, you know, to, can you restrict speech? Or in the 1940s uh, when you dealt with uh, the effort to restrict, uh, suppress communist speech, um, they, they become convinced that maybe, you know, uh, maybe there is something to restrict speech in a great, in a way greater than, than they, uh, thought when they first came into the course. Yeah. And, and in the classroom, how do you structure these kind of debates? Like in, in terms of students interacting with you, you presenting information to them, right? What, what is the kind of relationship in the, in the actual room? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, a lot of times I ask that I try to do a Socratic like method, you know, not completely, but, um, you know, I ask them the key facts of the case, key questions of the case, uh, whether or not they're convinced by, you know, the justice in the majority or the justice in the minority. I, I mean, a, a case that I really like to teach is, uh, is the Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to privacy case, which everyone, you know, sort of comes in saying, oh, of course, there's a right to privacy, right? I mean, how could you, how could you not have a right to privacy? Uh, but the, 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 the dissents in that case are particularly powerful. Um, and in that case, I, I have them listen to the oral arguments that the, from the court. Uh, and there's one justice in particular in, in that case, Potter Stewart, who asked the most difficult questions. Like he's just hammering this attorney from Connecticut. Yeah, why do you have this law restricting the sale of uh, contraceptives? Why can't, why can't a married couple purchase contraceptives if they so choose? What's going on here, right? Pushing, pushing, pushing. Ultimately, he dissents, right? Mm -hmm. And he dissents basically because he says, you know, my if I were a legislator, if I were elected to the state legislature of Connecticut, I would oppose this law, right? He calls it an uncommonly silly law. But I'm a justice, right? And my the question for me is whether or not the state legislature of Connecticut has the authority to pass this law. 
And I conclude that they do, right? That they have the constitutional authority to pass this uncommonly silly law. So, you know, a lot of times those those types of distinctions and those types of uh, differences of opinion with a justice that's clearly doesn't like the law, right? In terms of his personal opinions, but obviously feels uh, a duty to to uphold it. Yeah. A, a case before um, the Supreme Court now regarding <clears throat> the state exchanges mm-hmm. and the language of the Affordable Care Act, right. um, the specificity of what designates a state exchange versus the states that opted into the federal exchange. Right. Um, do you do you have a, a thought on on where you know on where that might go yeah. and, and and what we might it, see? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tricky case because this is a case if. Congress was working would not be uh, would be a moot point right okay. basically you have language that um, suggests that uh, states cannot create these uh, these entities right uh, and it's a mis- it's an error right it's a long bill right hundreds of pages long um, and you know when you're writing this much in this type of environment, you're bound to make errors. So typically in the past, what you would do is just, you just pass new legislation that said this was, you know, this was a mistake uh, and let's correct it. In this current environment, that's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going, and and given the Republican criticism of Obamacare, they're not going to allow that to happen. So this is an opportunity for the court, the conservative majority court to say, we allowed it the first time when we considered the Sabellus decision, but uh, here's a technical aspect that basically is going to undercut Obamacare. My guess um, is it would it would not. So John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, makes this very significant opinion in upholding the Affordable Care Act. Um, to to now change his position and. Um, even if there's a reasonable argument to that and say it's unconstant this um, to, 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 in a sense, rule against the Obama administration, um, it would just not look in terms of the image of the court. It would, it would sort of look like, you know, you're shaking, shaking somebody's hand and then stabbing them in the back at the same time that it, that, you know, maybe he'll do that, but um, my sense is that uh, given they they've they've made the decision, and to get a new case, you only need four justices to to accept the case, so you never know which four have accepted it. So you know, my guess is they'll uphold it. Okay, so it's a case of this more recent case being like almost a uh, less important precedent. Yeah, inter- mm-hmm. yeah, because the first one was on it kind of dealt with interstate. Uh, commerce clause. Is That's that, right. Is the, that right. The commerce clause and yeah. and and whether or not you know the commerce clause has been used um, in ways that wasn't intended it for for it to be used. Okay. So, for example, the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, is based on the commerce clause power. And if you look at Congress's power, um, they're not all that extensive um, and sometimes quite specific. So, commerce has been. Uh, gone to again and again as a way to allow uh, the Congress to act. Um, in that case, uh, what Robert said was that you don't have Congress, you don't have commerce power. That's that's actually inappropriate. But you do have taxing power, mm-hmm. right? 
the Obama administration didn't want to argue on taxing power because Obama didn't want to say it was a tax, right? That just the the nature of politics today, you don't want to say you're raising taxes. Um, but in a sense, that's what the court said. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, you will be appearing at the Supreme Court um, yes. as part of the recognition and honor um, that you received from the Supreme Court Historical Society. Tell us a little bit about what, what that will entail. And we also hope to have Professor McMahon back early <laughs> this summer to hear about this experience and an introduction from Justice Scalia, That's which right. um, I'll let you kind yeah. of put, that out. So I was told that, you know, one of the justices would be introducing me. And part of this uh, book award is that I give a lecture on the book in the Supreme Court itself in the actual courtroom, um, which is pretty intimidating. And then it's, I thought, really well, that's, that's spectacular. <laughs> yes. um, and then I thought, you know, um, who would introduce me? And they weren't telling me, you know, they they were said it's a scheduling issue. And I thought it might have, they might be targeting Scalia because he worked in the Nixon administration. Um, but he's certainly the most scary. You know, he's known <laughs> as the most sarcastic, asks a lot of questions, yeah. uh, interrupts. Uh, so he's a, it's, it'll be an intimidating experience. But again, as you said, thrilling as, at the same time. Yeah. I just a, a quick note on that, like the the role of justices in the Supreme Court, and 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 I guess more structurally on the courtroom itself. Like mm-hmm. the Supreme Court allows Scalia to do that, like to be as uh, you know to interrupt as often as he likes, right. or to like. I guess that just strikes me as kind of an interesting notion of the order and the process that we see in lower courts mm-hmm. versus that type of interaction that we see right. at the Supreme Court. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you ha- when you say there are oral arguments, right? Um, and I have it in my court, I have a in my course on constitutional law, both um, both of them, I have a moot court, right? Mm-hmm. So the so I have students act as justices and students act as attorneys. And um yeah, you can interrupt them. It's really more like a press conference mm-hmm. um, and n- even more than a press conference because, you know, the they're not allowed to answer the questions sometimes because, you know, um, you know, let's say you're a liberal justice. I'm a conservative justice. You may ask a question that you're trying to help the attorney out. And I know what you're trying to do. So I interrupt his answer or her answer um, because I'm trying to make my own point. Right. And and some just it's certainly different. Um, Scalia, I think, is um, has really changed the culture of these of, of these sessions, of these arguments. As you as you know, Thomas does not speak at all. He hasn't mm-hmm. asked a question in years. Um, and. And he feels that oftentimes the justices are rude, right? Um, that he thinks that this is somewhat of a show, uh, that the, the arguments are made in their briefs. Uh, you can read the arguments better than than any attorney is going to be able to articulate them in, in this type of setting. Yeah. Has that oral argument, has that always been the structure of the court? And what? how is that modeled? Like, where did that, that yeah. structure come from? It's a good question. Originally? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure how far it goes back. Um, 
I, I know it goes back uh, some some time because uh, you can listen to the tapes from yeah. from various uh, oral arguments. Yeah. Well, it's a thrilling honor and congratulations on Thank the recognition. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I might not be so thrilled when I <laughs> once I get there. Yeah. Um, now you've you spent you grew up in outside of Albany. Right. Went to school up near um, in a beautiful part of uh, New, New York up in the Adirondacks and have a pretty strong affinity with buffalo that's right um is, is it just limited to sports or you, no. you spent a good amount of time in buffalo as well that's yeah. right yeah so you know i i like to say i sort of did a tour of upstate new york right yeah. so i grew up in uh waterville new york as i said uh i went to catholic schools you know um until i went to college i went to a suny school up in potsdam which is very close to the canadian border uh then i came to to brandeis did my graduate work at brandeis but then i uh once i well before i finished my graduate work at brandeis spent two years in russia teaching teaching there uh, which we called the academic peace corps but my first academic job in the states was in ithaca new york at ithaca college so two years again another location in upstate new york um then out to um, SUNY Fredonia, which is near Buffalo. So I lived mm-hmm. in the Buffalo area for six years. Um, and long suffering Bills, yes, fan. that's right. So I had not uh, so long suffering Sabres fan. They no. had some some bright moments. Yeah, right? and we're struggling. We're we're fighting mighty hard to be the last, the worst team this year. So yeah. we'll get the, one of the top. I, I'm giving Professor picks. McMahon a hard time. I love Buffalo. <laughs> have a lot of very good friends from Buffalo, and it reminds me a lot of Hartford as a, <clears throat> pardon me, kind of underdog city that right. um, is is coming back. Has a lot of vibrancy and good young core of of people trying to make the city a better place. So Yeah, I mean I I left in 2005 and I only returned I, the, right after I left I returned quite a few times because because you know there were weddings or events that I was returning to. Um but after probably 2008 I didn't go back uh until last year and the city has really become a much different place. It's mm-hmm. really tra- transformed itself. You know, I I was often a critic of the of the New York Times because anytime they they describe Buffalo they would always say oh the struggling in indu- post industrial deindustrialized city you know yeah. uh, edges of Lake Erie and it was just like it seemed that they just you know once they hit Buffalo there were like two sentences that fell into place right and went into the story that they didn't actually understand the efforts being made to revitalize the city and yeah. I think finally you're starting to see that. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful city. And I, again, I think a, a model for, for Hartford, great art scene, great mm-hmm. music scene, lots of development with uh, the new Bills owner uh, mm-hmm. building a huge NHL, not not NHL, a hockey training center. Exactly, yeah. Casino downtown. I don't know how you know well that uh, does for civic redevelopment, right. but certainly something big and new yeah. and a lot of investment in the city. Much like Hartford, with the Civic Center and Front Street yeah. and um, Convention Center, a lot, right. of, a lot of new developments. And, and also, like Hartford, uh, adding on to the casinos is you know you have Niagara, Niagara Falls is not too far away, yeah. you know, half an hour maybe, uh, and you have casinos there. And you know whether like you not like the, whether you like to gamble or not, there are significant concerts and comedy sure. shows that are uh, occurring at places like Mohegan Sun and 
in the casinos in yeah. in Niagara Falls. Now you're, you're two years in Russia. Um, what what years what 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 years were you over in, in Russia for? I was there from 1994, two academic years. So I came home in the summertime, 1994 to 1996. So yeah. this was the end, very end of the Yeltsin years. Kind of uh, tumultuous yes, time the, yes. to be in Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Just, the, the kind of oligarchs rising up and That's right. privatization of all of the Russia Soviet industry and in that's that right era. yeah this was the wild wild east I mean it was it was really a, a crazy time to be there for an American I mean the, the first year it was so this was a organization that sent uh, I think it was 11 advanced graduate students recent PhDs to various cities in in Russia uh, in 1994 and Russia was the they had been the organization had been in other Eastern European cities um, in previous years, you know, post uh, tearing down the, the Berlin Wall, but this was the first year in Russia, and there were three of us in the city of Yekaterinburg, which is roughly the third largest city in Russia. There's uh, there's about three or four cities that are close in terms of population um, from three to six. You know, we all know Moscow, we all know St. Petersburg, and then we tend not to know any others. So Yekaterinburg was one of them, and it was often seen as uh the roughest and toughest uh place and and as an american who didn't speak much russian uh it was an intimidating experience yeah but. so you got a sense i mean it was everywhere of like controlled chaos or yeah or uncontrolled of, chaos. okay yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it was uh you know it was not uncommon to see um fist fights in the street uh yeah. to see um, you know, somebody just laying some, some drunk, just laying on the street and people stepping over him, yeah. uh, to, you know, anything you want it, you know, you could get right. I mean, uh, people, the ma the mafia may be showing up to, to your apartment and saying, we like your apartment. We're going to take it over. Right. Hmm. Please move. Um, so, you know, the, all these and some of it's stories, but, but certainly, there was the sense that uh, a sense of opportunity, but a sense that, you know, you weren't necessarily protected from the state. And yeah. because sometimes the, the, you know, the mafia and the, the state were connected. Right. I, I mean, it was it was link. It was a linkage between government and, and uh, private private individuals. Yeah. Well, we're glad you are back and yeah. back back over here in the relative. <laughs> well, it, it's one of those things when you're when you're ignorant enough, you don't know what you're getting into. So we wouldn't, you know, Russia at the time didn't have a very significant restaurant scene, and it was not uncommon for you know five or six Americans to be sitting at a restaurant next to some rough looking folks. But because you know we really couldn't understand what they were talking about. Um, we were fine. Yeah. Well, ignorance <laughs> is bliss, I guess, That's in that right, situation. Exactly. You didn't know the danger that lurked right around the corner. Indeed. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for uh, for speaking to me. Um, we, we do hope to have Professor McMahon back um, maybe in, in early or mid-May um, to talk about his experience down at the Supreme Court. Thanks, as always, to Eben in the booth and the mill for the recording space. Um, episodes of the Faculty Profile 
excuse me, can be found on the Trinity College SoundCloud page. If you go to soundcloud.com and search Trinity College, you'll find old episodes. And the faculty profile is on Twitter, at faculty profile. Link to old episodes, leave comments, and suggest future guests to the show. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you again, Professor McMahon, for coming in. Thank you. And uh, check back in the future for future episodes of the Faculty Profile Podcast.